just wave to them. They'll get one into your hands, and then you can not only hear the Word of God this morning, but read along for yourself, which is always the best way to absorb truth. Second Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Thank you, Lord, this morning for your word. Thank you for the privilege of being able to build our lives on it. Thank you that heaven and earth is going to pass away, but your word and its truth and its promises will never pass away. Thank you for so sure a foundation in our lives. And we thank you this morning, Father, that we never need to turn to this book alone but always have the opportunity to do so in fellowship with the author. We pray that you freshly fill us with your Holy Spirit. Give us a sensitivity to his voice through his word this morning. We've come for a work of your Holy Spirit in our lives, and we've already tasted of that. And now, Lord, we ask for that work of your Spirit to continue as we study your word And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we finished 1 Peter last week, and so I knew we'd be going into 2 Peter immediately after, and I want to give a little bit of an introduction to it this morning. 2 Peter was probably written just about a year after 1 Peter was written, somewhere in about... 66 A.D. And the circumstances surrounding the writing of Second Peter are very similar to the reasons for the writing of First uh, Peter, and in that Peter is writing to largely the same group of people in the same kind of circumstances. But there are two major differences uh, between First and Second Peter that we'll see in a moment. The first verse of chapter three reveals to us here in this second epistle that the epistle was written to kind of, as I've said, the same general readers, Christians all over the Roman Empire who were in the midst of a very, very fierce persecution, great suffering that they were going through uh, at the hands of a very organized and kind of empire-wide persecution by uh, the Roman Empire itself. Nero had set, had ordered fires set in the capital city of the Roman Empire, the city of Rome. Fully half of the city of Rome was burned to the ground as a result of uh, the, the work of the arsons that had been sent out by him to do that. He felt that Rome in its current condition was not majestic enough and needed to be rebuilt with a grandeur that would speak of the greatness of Rome, the pushback on the part of the people. They were so incensed by this that and, and recognized, it, it, it suspected that Nero was behind all of it. The pushback was so great that he felt threatened in his own position of power sufficiently that he felt that 
kind of the political outcome of it was too great for even an all-powerful emperor, so he had to find a scapegoat, and he blamed the fires on Christians, which then started a persecution of Christians throughout the Roman Empire. This is Peter's second letter, and it's his last letter. And he doesn't write about this persecution hypothetically or, you know, pie-in-the-sky kind of attitude. This persecution would come very, very close to Peter, and it wouldn't be long after writing this second letter that he would be martyred in Rome for being a Christian. And, and he knew, as we're going to see later in this chapter on another day, that that death that he was going to die was fast approaching. So it helps us to understand kind of the urgency of Peter in the writing of this particular letter. There's something that he wants to say, and he knows this is going to be his final recorded words. It's one thing when a person communicates their final words and they don't know they're going to die. Uh, death comes unexpectedly, and that unexpectedly becomes their final words. And in that kind of a situation, what becomes their final words would typically not be their final words if they knew that death was right around the corner. He knows he's going to be martyred for his faith. And so he sits down and he writes the things in the power of the Holy Spirit, inspiration of the Spirit that he wanted to communicate to these Christians that were in the midst of so much and wants to communicate to us here today. There's something sacred about final words. If you ever have the privilege or the opportunity to be someone with someone where they are dying, they're on their deathbed, and you have the privilege of being their final company, and they speak their final words to you, that's very, very holy ground. It's very significant that someone would take and entrust the final things that they're going to think and they're going to feel and they're going to say to entrust that to you. That's a huge privilege. And that's what we have in Second Peter here. In, the, in all of us reading it, even in this day, 2,000 years following his death, it's very sacred, this letter, that we have a chance to sit and to hear the Apostle Peter's final words. I'm always humbled by the privilege. And so just as Second Timothy holds a, a tremendous place in our hearts because it was the Apostle Paul's final letter, here we have the same kind of feeling towards Second Peter, knowing that this is the final instruction of Peter to us. Now, First and Second Peter <clears throat> communicate different messages. First Peter dealt with the dangers and the oppositions that Christians were facing from without at the time, the persecutions and opposition that they were facing from the world against them. Second Peter deals with the dangers that Christians face from within the church, so to speak, or from within professing Christianity, for, or from those that uh, claim to be Christians and things like false doctrine, false prophets, false teachers, which he gives tremendous space to later in the epistle. This morning we want to just limit ourselves to Peter's greeting as he begins this particular letter because he says a lot in these two verses in his opening greeting and all of it is important. 
I love the introductions to the letters of the New Testament. I never tire of reading them. I've read them more times than I can can count. I've taught them more times than I can count. And yet every time I come to them, and not just because of a poor memory, it's like I come to it for the first time. Because there are truths in these introductions and greetings to these epistles that some of which completely transformed my Christian life once I came to understand them or gave me insight into the Christian life that made it so clear to me, more clear than maybe anywhere else in the Bible. So they're really highly treasured by me. I love to spend time in the introductions. I like letters, and I've always liked letters ever since I was a kid. And you look at me, and it isn't uh, hard to realize that I come, uh, it was raised in the United States of America in a different age in terms, certainly in terms of technology. So in those days, nobody even dreamed of faxes, let alone emails, let alone texting, let alone tweeting, all the different forms that communication uh, take today. In those days, when you received personal correspondence, it was almost always in the form of being handwritten. In the circles that I grew up in, the friends that I knew, I don't know that a single one of those households had a typewriter. We certainly didn't own a typewriter. Everything was handwritten. And that's... and, and. That's kind of the history that I bring to these letters. I don't have to stop and make myself think. I grew up in a time in the, in the United States and in the world when letters were handwritten like they were in the New Testament, where they would receive a letter and they would savor it. They would read it. And that's what would happen with this letter. They would read it over and over and over and over again. And sometimes the greatest part of a letter, I didn't receive a lot of letters, but I treasured the ones that I did. Sometimes the greatest part of the letter is not the body of the letter. That's kind of the business of the letter, even in a personal correspondence. It's written for a purpose. Sometimes the most treasured part of the letter is the greeting at the beginning, where someone will say something that's it's relational, it's uh, communicating the heart of a person toward the recipient of the letter. And oftentimes, that's the sweetest part of the letter. And so it's not something to kind of hurry through or to rush through. And and it's very, very significant. And, and, And it would have been not only it was in those days, even as it is today. Now, the form that a typical letter took in Peter's days, very... Somewhat different from the form that our letters take today. When we write a letter to one another, we typically begin it with dear so-and-so. We identify who we're writing to, and then we follow it with a greeting. I trust that you're doing well, and then followed by the body of the letter, the purpose of the letter. Then it's followed by kind of a closing expression of uh, affection or warmth, and then the signing of our name. And so if we want to know who wrote the letter to us, we simply look on the envelope or we thumb through to the back page of the letter and we know, ah, oh, this is written from so-and-so to me. Now, in Peter's day, the structure of the letter was largely the same, except that the writer 
identified himself at the beginning of the letter rather than later at the end of the letter for the simple reason that when they wrote letters in those days, they didn't go down and get like a a pad of yellow paper and write a letter. Uh, The letters were written on scrolls. And so instead of having a person receive a scroll or a piece of correspondence, a letter, and then have to roll all the way to the end of the scroll to see who it was from, they would identify themselves at the beginning of the letter. And a typical letter <clears throat> contained the following elements. Uh, it would begin with who wrote the letter, then who it was written to, then a word of greeting, followed with some kind of a thanksgiving on the part of the writer, something they were thankful for in the life of the person that they were writing to. Then there would be the body of the letter and a closing kind of benediction or blessing and then a conclusion to that letter. And so this morning we want to take note of the first three of those who wrote the letter and who it was written to and uh, the author's word of greeting. Now, the word, writer of the letter is obvious there in verse 1, uh, Simon Peter. It's interesting, I think, to at least uh, to realize, at least concerning Peter, that Peter was not the name that his parents gave to him. Uh, Peter's name, the name Peter was given to uh, Peter by Jesus himself. Peter's name that he received from his parents was the name Simon, and his, that name means God has heard. So that tells us that when he was born, that was exciting for the family. They realized this little boy is an answer to prayer. God heard our prayers. And so it tells us something of the spirituality of his home and the attitude of the parents toward him. When Jesus first met Peter, Peter was brought uh, to Jesus by his brother Andrew. And when Peter came into the presence of Jesus, Jesus looked at him, we're told in John chapter 1, and he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. And then he said, You shall be called Cephas, and Cephas is Syriac for uh, the Greek uh, Petros, which means Peter, and Jesus said, which is translated a stone. Later in Peter's ministry, uh, Jesus asked the disciples, Who do you say that I am? And Peter said, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then Jesus said to him, I say to you that you are Peter. Uh, and Peter, which means is Petros, it's a, it means a little rock. And on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades shall not prevail against it. And I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. And whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. Whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. So he gave him from the Greek the name Petros, which is translated Peter. And it means little rock. There's a variation of the name Petra, which is the feminine form of the word. And it means a great mountain of stone. It's like seeing a cliff of granite. So he calls Peter a little rock, and he says, upon this rock I will build my church. Is he to build the church on Peter? No, God forbid. The great Peter was just a little stone who made a great confession. What was the great confession? You are the Christ. You're the promised Messiah, the Son of the living God. You are the Son of God. 
And it is that great, gigantic wall of granite, mountain of stone that Jesus said, I will build my church upon this, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. So he was a little rock who made a a great, great confession concerning uh, the Lord. And so Jesus named him the... Uh, named him Peter from his given name of Simon. I think it's fascinating to realize that God is going to give you a new name one day as a Christian. That's pretty exciting, I think. Now, some parts of the world, you don't even have to wait. I mean, they're not even waiting for God's new name. They do it now. If you go to India, it's fascinating. Because so many Indian people are born out of kind of a pagan background, an openly idolatrous background where they are named after the Hindu gods or whatever it might be, that once they become Christians, they don't want to have any tie to that pagan history that they have. So if you went to a church or you went to a pastor's conference and you mingled around and you said hi to 50 people, you'd come away thinking, I have never known so many people to be named David or Samuel or Stephen or Peter. I mean, they have grabbed these biblical names and renamed themselves in the light of the fact that they've become a new creation. Well, on top of that, them and us, we're going to receive a new name. Jesus, when he spoke to the church at Pergamos in the book of Revelation. He said, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will give of the hidden manna to eat, and I will give him a white stone, and on the stone a new name written, which no one knows except him who receives it. Oh, no. He's going to rename me Fauntleroy. Forever I'm going to be known as Fauntleroy in heaven or Dennis the Menace or the Big Mess or who let you in here. (laughs) It's not going to be that way at all. When Jesus renamed Peter, and it's fascinating, and he renamed Peter Rock, he named Peter after the single greatest thing that he had brought into Peter's life, stability, stability. And I think that when we are renamed in eternity, the name of God, something of this name is going to be the name of God put upon us. The name of God represents his nature. And I'm convinced that when God looks at our life, individually our lives, and and he looks and he says, here is the great characteristic of my nature that you pulled in the greatest measure from me and from my life in order for you to enjoy the quality of Christian life that you enjoyed. And I'm going to rename you after that great quality of me that came to characterize you, that could, would have nev- you, would, you would have never otherwise been characterized by that great trait except that you drew it from me. Now notice, and so our new name is going to be to the praise of the glory of his grace forever and ever. Now notice Peter's self-description in verse 1. He had identified himself, first of all, as a bondservant. Now something about this term, a bondservant, that in the early church, it was evidently a very uh, highly esteemed title to take to oneself. 
Peter isn't the only one that called himself a bondservant in the introduction to the letters. Paul did it repeatedly. Uh, James did it in his epistle. Jude did it in his epistle. So we say, what's the attractiveness of this term bondservant? What is the appeal of it? And this word bondservant is the Greek word doulos. And the origin of this phrase bondservant comes from the Old Testament in the book of Exodus chapter 21. That's where its imagery comes from. According to the law of Moses, if you were a Hebrew and another Hebrew was forced to sell himself to you as a slave, let's say he became indebted to you in some way, could not pay you back, did not have any material means by which to sell or to uh, pay off his debt, then he would work that debt off. He would become your servant. He'd become your slave. And God set up a requirement within the law of Moses that when a Hebrew was a slave to another Hebrew, he could only be in that position for six years. He would always be released on the seventh year. But if on the seventh year the Hebrew servant was released, and he's about to be released from this master, if he said to himself, I am freed now to leave this home, to leave your lordship, to leave your headship, but I know that if I go out into that great big wide world out there, I will never find a better life than the life that I have enjoyed in the last six years under your lordship. And so I choose as an act of my will to make myself your servant for life. And when a person would make that decision, they would become a bondservant. And they would then call for the elders of the town to come together. The uh, man would have his earlobe put against the doorpost of the house, and all would be run through it. He'd be given a ring, an earring in, in his ear, and he would become a bondservant to his master. And there are three great characteristics of being a bondservant. And number one, it was always done willingly, always done, or always done rather out of a motive of love. My master has been so good to me. This is the most wonderful life I could have ever dreamed of living. And so out of his love for me, I make myself a bondservant to him. The second characteristic is that it was done on the basis of his free will. No one was ever forced to be a bondservant. That was a choice that a person uh, made. And then the third characteristic is that that commitment was forever. It was made for life. And that's what Peter is communicating about his relationship with the Lord here. And it, and it is this commitment that every Christian makes to God when we put our faith in Jesus for salvation. We come into a relationship with God because we recognize the greatness of his love. And then we take and of our own free will, we choose to become a part of his family, to make him the Lord of our life. No one is going to be in heaven against their will. There aren't going to be any tagging up there of the buildings Nobody's going to be setting fire to anything. There's not going to be any, there's not going to be any like, you know, undercurrent of whatever. It'll be a complete volunteer situation up there. Everyone will be there that is there, will have wanted to be there. 
That's how we become a Christian. We want to become a Christian. I hope none of you became Christians because somebody held a gun to your head. That's not how it works. We do it out of a motive of love, and we do it willingly, and then we make that commitment forever and ever and ever. We give our life to the Lord and say, Lord, it's yours. You use my life however you see fit for all of this life and all of the life to come. Now, that bondservant of Jesus Christ, one of the highest titles that a person can have in life, and Peter knew that to be true, and that's why he writes of being a bondservant before he then speaks of his apostleship. He considered the one greater than the other. Why? The relationship is always more important than the calling even when the calling is to be an apostle. The relationship is everything because it is out of the relationship that anything else good flows in our life. And it's only out of the relationship that we can ever fulfill what God has called us to be, whatever that might be, whether apostle or something else. And I think that if you sit here this morning and you're not a Christian yet, Good for you to realize that there is no better life than the one that God has planned for you. And if you begin a relationship with him this morning, he will spoil you for any other life. It's one of the great things about being a Christian is that once we walk with the Lord as a bondservant, we put in our six years or our six weeks or our six hours or whatever, we realize I have been forever and wonderfully spoiled from ever returning to anything else in this life and ever being satisfied. And so when he does write as an apostle, he's communicating that the letter is also written with an apostolic authority. In other words, it isn't purely a personal correspondence that what he speaks in here and the things that he teaches and the things that he commands are not suggestions, are not options. They're written with apostolic authority and the power of the Holy Spirit. Now, next I want us to notice in verse 1 who the letter is written to. It's written, notice, to those who have obtained like precious faith with us by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Huh? You ever sometimes read a a sentence in the Bible and you say, you know, I know that that's really good because it's in the Bible, but I don't have the foggiest idea what just got said there. It's funny, you know, you read Ephesians chapter 1, the Apostle Paul wrote that, and he got so excited about who we are in Christ Jesus, all of the things as Christians that we have in Christ Jesus, he just begins to you know, compound sentences together. There's no punctuation at all in the entire chapter. The whole chapter is one sentence. There's one thing right after another, after another, after another that he writes. Sometimes you can read a a sentence like that and say, that's got to be really good because it's right there at the beginning of of this, this book, but I don't have any idea what it means. And basically, that is a description of a Christian. It's just a very full, very beautiful way of describing Christians. And so this letter is written to Christians all through the ages. 
even right those of us in this room here this morning. Now, I am always fascinated by the, in the various epistles or the various letters of the New Testament to notice how the writers describe us as Christians. And almost all, all of them do. They'll have a sentence just like this that describes who they're writing to, Christians, but they describe us in a way, in, in a very unique and kind of different way. And I like how they, how they do that. There is something that they are, in, in their description of us as Christians, that they're bringing out in the light of whatever we're facing in life or they were facing in life that they needed to be reminded of in their lives as Christians. And we need to be reminded too. I think about Jesus when he wrote those seven letters to the seven churches. He had them dictated. And in each of those letters, he would begin them by reminding these individual churches with it of himself. He would give some self-description of himself to them because it was something about him that they had forgotten about that was affecting them in a bad way or something they needed to be reminded about concerning him that would be a comfort or an encouragement to them. So these descriptions aren't just like filler verses. They're really saying something, and if we know what they're saying, they describe the Christian life in a very, very beautiful way. And we notice Peter's description of Christians. He says, first of all, those who have obtained like precious faith with us. In other words, we possess the same salvation in this room today as Christians. We possess the same salvation that Peter possessed. And same salvation an apostle possesses. And we obtained it in the same way that he did through faith by trusting in Jesus for salvation just like he did. In other words, Peter is communicating that everyone can be saved, not just apostles. Everyone can be saved. In other words, no one in this room or in this world is in the hopeless category. There's no one that is so bad that has done so much sin that they cannot be saved. And Peter is also saying that everyone is saved the same way, whether a Jew or whether a Gentile or whether an, a, a, they have become an apostle or whether, in my case, they're a cable splicer for the phone company or whoever or whatever you were at the time that you became a Christian. There are no secret, exclusive entrances for the rich and the famous or the powerful. Sometimes they get to go in these side doors to fancy restaurants, which never bothers me because I hardly go to fancy restaurants. But while the rest of us are waiting in line, they get the best tickets that are held for them and the best seats and the best this and the best that. And it's all based upon respect of persons. And God is impartial. He has no respect of persons in him and his dealing with us as people. We are all of us simple sinners. We are whosoever's, as Jesus said, when we come to God for salvation. For God so loved the world, Jesus said, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever, that's everybody, that's you, that's me, that's the most powerful man in the world and the most powerless man in the world, 
that whosoever would believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Paul wrote and he said, there's none righteous, no, not one. Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Jesus, Paul wrote to Timothy and he declared, for there is one God and one mediator between God, the man Christ Jesus. And Peter preached early in the book of Acts and he said, nor is there salvation in any other, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I think it's amazing to realize that we have the same salvation as Peter did. We have the same salvation as an apostle. Our salvation is just as sure. Our privileges are just as great. All of the things, again, that Paul writes about in Ephesians chapter 1, all that we have, all that we are in Christ Jesus, all of that is as fully ours as it was Peter's. God's promises to Christians, to us, in the volume of the book are just as true for us as they were for Peter. Anyone who has faith in Jesus has the same access to God through prayer as any other believer. We are equally accepted by God as Peter was. And on and on we could go. We're all given the same offer. We all have the same opportunity to receive it. Salvation through faith in Jesus' death and his burial and his resurrection. He then also describes us as Christians by saying, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, most often when you read in the New Testament, it talks about righteousness. It's talking about the righteousness of Jesus, the right-onness, the rightness of Jesus that is put to our account as Christians because of our trust in Him. That when we become a Christian, when God looks at us now, He no longer sees our unrighteousness or our sin, but now He sees the perfect righteousness of Jesus put to our account. That's not how Peter is speaking of righteousness here, and it's important to realize. Peter is saying that this offer of salvation is available to all of us because God is righteous. That is, he is utterly impartial in offering salvation. He doesn't show any favoritism. No one has to be afraid of coming to God, asking for forgiveness as they put their trust in, in Jesus for that forgiveness, there, no one needs to be afraid that there's any risk of rejection in doing that. That there'll be some kind of a collective groan in heaven. Oh, no. If we had known that she would take God up on this offer, we'd have never offered it. Well, the Bible says, in fact, just the opposite is true, that every time a person puts their faith in Christ all around the world, that the heavens break out into celebration over the great thing that has happened in that person's life. God, Peter is saying, is completely fair, and he will receive any and all on an equal basis who trust in his son, including you, just like he did 
with so many of us in this room. John wrote and he said, But as many as received him, that is Jesus, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, to those who believe in his name. And it's the very righteousness of God, rather the very righteousness of God, demands that faith be extended to all people. And thus, God has done that. And then I want you to also notice that phrase of God, of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, because it's significant. Here you have, G- here you have Peter speaking of the deity of Jesus. It's one of the strongest verses in the entire Bible that speaks of the deity of Christ, the fact that Jesus is God, just as God the Father is God and the Holy Spirit is God. All, each of them are divine. Each of them are a person of the Godhead. And so Jesus is divine. He is the Son of God, and he is God the Son. Sometimes people who are unfamiliar with the Bible, they struggle with the fact of Jesus' deity, the fact that he is the Son of God and that he is God the Son. And they'll typically say something like this, isn't it enough that I believe in him as a good person or as a great teacher or as a great example or as a great man? Isn't it enough that I can believe in him even as the greatest man in human history? And the simple answer is no. Because if that's all he was, then our sin problem is unresolved. Because one who is merely a good person or a great teacher or a great example isn't qualified to provide mankind with the forgiveness of sins. Because Jesus is divine, he is also sinless, and it is the sinlessness of Jesus that is essential to our salvation because a sinner cannot die for another sinner. He needs a Savior for himself. In the same way that a person who does not know how to swim has no hope of saving another person who does not know how to swim. It is the sinlessness that qualified Jesus to be the perfect sacrifice for the forgiveness of our sins, to be, as Peter wrote in his first epistle, the lamb without blemish and without spot. And some people, they don't like Jesus' claim to deity, and so they reject him on that basis. I'll accept him as a great man, but not as the great God-man. But if you take away his deity, you have a Savior. You are left with a Savior who cannot save. It's the sinlessness of his deity that uniquely qualifies him to provide mankind with salvation. This is one of the problems, and I don't mean to offend, but if you, the people pick up bits and pieces related to the Bible or the life of Christ, maybe from a physical or a cultural anthropology teacher in college or some other instructor or an aunt or an uncle or a relative or a friend, 
And then all of a sudden, because we're Americans and we know better than everybody else, we think we can improve upon God and the description of God in the scriptures. And so what we don't like, we reject. And what we do like, we accept. And then what we reject, we then uh, replace it with our better idea. And we have no idea that we are destroying. There is a reason for everything about God. There is a reason for everything about Jesus. And you cannot change him and improve him. It cannot be done because he's already perfection. Now, he is divine. He needed to be divine because if he wasn't divine, then he cannot be a savior to the world and we needed a savior. And finally, I want you to notice his greeting in verse 2 where he said, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And I love the truths that surround this greeting. And I'll tell you, it never ceases to warm my heart as I think about this greeting of grace and peace be multiplied unto you. Now, the greeting of grace and peace at the time of Peter, it was the, combina- it was the combining of the common two most common greetings of people to one another in, in, at the time. The world was, uh, 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 Roman, uh, Rome dominated the world at that time. But the language and the culture of Rome was Greek. It had risen out of the uh, Greek empire. And so the learned people of, uh, of that whole part of the world, they spoke Greek. That was the common language of the people. And so their greeting of one another was grace in the Greek charis. And the word grace means unmerited favor. It means undeserved favor. So when a Gentile would run into another Gentile, they would say charis. They would say grace. And it was their way of saying, may you have a better day than you deserve. It'd be, it was kind of like our way of saying, of saying, have a good day or have a great day. That was what was being communicated. Now, the Jews, when they would greet, they wouldn't greet with charis. They would greet with the word peace or the Hebrew word shalom. So they would say shalom, shalom to one another in greeting each other. And that was kind of the equivalent of our God bless you. And it was really this kind of a one word prayer expressing their desire uh, for the very best for that person. So when they'd say Shalom, they'd be saying, God bless you with his very best upon your life. And both of those greetings are still used today in Greece and in Israel, respectively. The order of these two words in the Bible is very, very significant. And whenever you see these two words coupled in the Bible, it is always grace first and always peace second. That that rule is never violated. Not one time in the Bible will you ever read peace and grace. It is always grace and peace for the simple reason that we will never, ever know the peace of God until we know the grace of God. And thus, grace and peace are known as the Siamese twins of the New Testament. I love that. This morning will be 
I will be satisfied if the only thing that you take away from this entire message is for the rest of your life when you read the New Testament and you see grace and peace in that order that you realize that that, those are the Siamese twins of the New Testament because I will only know the peace of God as I know the grace of God. That will be significant for us uh, today. They are inseparable We cannot have a peace-filled relationship with God until we recognize that he deals with us on the basis of grace, undeserved favor, uh, giving us blessings that we do not deserve. And this grace that he extends to us in our lives, he deals with us on the basis of grace concerning our salvation and concerning our relationship with the Lord. But concerning our salvation, God has made it absolutely a grace thing, an undeserved favor thing. Concerning our salvation, God has made it a free gift. We cannot earn it in any way. It's a gift that we simply receive. If God did not supply us with a finished salvation then our salvation would not be secure. And if our salvation is not secure, then we can't rest in it. And we can't know peace. And so God has supplied us with a finished salvation. When Jesus was on the cross, one of the things that he spoke upon the cross was, it is started. Now, that's not what he said on the cross. He said, to tell us he said, it is finished, paid in full. When something is finished, it's finished. A thing isn't finished until it is finished. But once it is finished, it's finished. And when you try to do anything to something that's finished, when you try to add to it, you mar it. We ruin it. Take an example of something just as simple as doing an interior decoration in a room, in a home. If that room is finished, truly finished, and you come into that room and you try to add one more painting, one more article of furniture, then you have marred that room. It was finished. It never needed anything to be added to it. And to attempt to add to it would mar it. God has provided us with a finished salvation. There's nothing that needs to be added to it at all. And if we add to it, then we mar that salvation and, and we then end up with a salvation that isn't a true salvation and a salvation that we can't rest in. If salvation was based upon Jesus' work upon the cross and anything, then he didn't supply us with a finished salvation. If he said, you are saved by believing in me, and you fill that blank in with anything you want to fill it in with, and anything you fill that blank in with, now that makes that salvation something that's in jeopardy because now it's based upon our effort and our abilities. You say, my salvation is based upon something holy, my faith in Christ and saying, our Father, three times a day to the Lord. What happens 
If a day comes in your life and you get Alzheimer's disease and you can't formulate our Father anymore, what happens to your salvation? Someone says, I, my salvation is based upon faith in Christ and me doing this and this and this religious activity. What happens if you get in a car wreck and you're a quadriplegic and you can't do that anymore? Now the salvation is unsure. To say nothing of if we say my salvation is based upon this and, and me doing anything in the light of how unfaithful we are, how fragile we are, how sinful we are, it leaves us with a salvation that isn't secure and that we can't rest in. And that's why God has supplied us with a finished salvation. You sometimes, and not only as it relates to grace in terms of our salvation, but God also deals with us on the basis of grace once we have a relationship with the Lord. It's all unmerited favor. The relationship that I have with God on a daily basis, to pray with Him, to walk with Him, to talk with Him, His blessings in my life, it is all undeserved favor. I don't deserve anything about my salvation. I don't deserve anything about the life that I have every day as a Christian. And I pinch myself that I get to live this life as opposed to the life that I once lived. But it's all on the basis of His grace, undeserved favor, in my life. And there's that realization when I understand that not only did he save me by grace, but this whole Christian walk with him is, is centered upon grace, that I can't get him to love me any more than he already loves me. I can't get him to be for me any more than he's already for me. I can't get him to be committed to me any more than he's already committed to me. And the same thing is true of you. And as we experience his grace in our lives, his, his commitment to this relationship, how he picks us up over and over and over and over and over again, his commitment to this relationship, it makes us love him all the more when we thought we couldn't love him any more than we already did. And it makes us want to walk with him and obey him and bless his heart in a greater measure than we ever have before. And we thought we couldn't know that in a greater measure than we already did. But somebody might complain and say, if you make salvation that free, and you make it that sure, and you speak about a, a relationship with God in those kind of grace terms. Listen, I know Christians, and if you don't keep them hanging over hell just a little while each week, you're not going to get anything out of them. If you don't keep them just slightly uncertain, at least on a weekly basis, that he's just a little bit displeased with them, then you're not going to get anything out of them. You're going to end up with a bunch of people that are going to use grace as an excuse to sin, and you're going to end up with a church full of a bunch of carnal, compromising, disobedient, lukewarm Christians. And, and that's a prevailing attitude today as it relates to grace. I don't believe it because it isn't true. And you know why I don't believe that it's true? Because I believe that the hardest thing in the whole world to do is to sin against grace. 
The hardest thing in the world is to sin against love. It is far easier to sin against law, almost effortless. But it is a hard thing to sin against a relationship, especially a relationship that we care about, especially in a relationship with a person who is so unfailingly good to us as God is unfailingly good to us. If a love for God will not produce obedience in a Christian's life, no law ever will. Love and response to love is the highest motivation for obedience in the Christian life. John wrote, we love him because, that's a Y word, he first loved us. It's a response. And motivation is key in the Christian life. The motivation is so important, and that is our motivation. And as I said, the right motivation is powerful stuff. There's the story of a young man who took a shortcut through a cemetery one night on his way home, and he fell into an open grave, and he starts screaming and yelling and calling out for help and trying to climb up out of the sides of of the grave, and, and nobody could hear his cries, and he couldn't get out, so he just settled down and resigned himself to spending the night in the grave, and he put himself off into a corner of the grave just to wait until morning. A little while later, another young man was taking the same route through the cemetery, headed for home as well. He fell into the same open grave. He starts shouting and screaming, and he's clawing at the sides of the, of the grave in order to get out, just like the first man had, young man had done. And suddenly, the second fellow heard a voice out of the dark corner of the grave say, you can't get out of here, but he did. (laughs) Motivation is powerful, powerful stuff. The highest motive is love. He says, be multiplied unto you. And he speaks of this grace and peace being multiplied because he's writing to Christians in difficulty. But I think it may be more than that. I think that Peter, of all of the apostles, we think of him in terms of how much grace he demanded of God. And it's for that reason he's one of maybe the most encouraging of all the apostles to us. And he knows we need it multiplied. And then he closed it by saying, in the knowledge of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. And the word knowledge there means epigenoso. It refers to a knowledge that comes by experience. There is knowledge that we gain from books. And then there is experience knowledge. In other words, the better we know God, the longer we walk with God, Peter is saying, we will discover these things to be true. That it is not only as we come to know, that it is only as we come to know the grace of God that we will come to know the peace of God the peace he wants us to have concerning our salvation, the peace that he wants us to have concerning our relationship with him. Let's stand together and we'll pray. There's a lot of grace in this room, and the Lord knows it. Let's give him praise for it now. Thank you, Lord, for the greatness of your grace in our lives. 
we don't notice the half of it. But what we do notice, Lord, humbles us, and it makes us love you more than ever when we thought we could not love you more than ever. Thank you for your commitment to us. Thank you for giving us a salvation that is sure as it is because it's based upon grace. Thank you, Lord, that as you saw who and what we are this side of heaven, that you knew we'd need a relationship with you that would be fully loaded upon grace. And we thank you, Lord, for the grace that you have shown to us and that we will never outstrip your grace. And we thank you for the peace that we enjoy concerning our eternity and the peace that we enjoy in our relationship with you because you have founded these things upon grace. We give you praise. We give you honor. We give you glory this morning for your wisdom and for your grace. And we do so in the name of the one who has made all of this possible. In Jesus' name, amen.